listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today, we are in Torino. Well, that's wonderful to hear that music again, isn't it, Daniel? The familiar, now familiar, um, Amaratera. How many years is that? Is this our it's a few? Six years, six Giro with Amaratera Cozzi. I think it might be as our soundtrack. Daniele Fribarancini. Or Frappuccino as um, one, well, a rider who um, is very much linked, very much synonymous with the recent history of well. the Tour de France. I'm not going to, sorry, Giro d'Italia. I'm not going <laughs> to reveal his identity, but there is a rider who has come up with a nickname for me, Frappuccino. He got, yeah, he was uh, very, um, very anxious to get in touch with you to pass on this nickname. Uh, a, a little clue is that everywhere I turned today, I saw his face, hmm. but he's not here. And we're also joined by a mystery guest tonight, and he's sitting here, uh, Brian Nygaard. Hello, Brian. Hey, chaps. Thank you for having me again. A familiar voice. Very good friend of the podcast. Well, yeah, you've been on a couple of times. Yeah, I mean, you dug Daniel out of a bit of a hole a couple of years ago when he was left here on his own, and you happy to do the same for you, Richard. (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much for that, Brian. But you're back at the Giro. Are you here because you're a resident of the US now? Are you here for the whole race, or no? I'm I'm randomly here because the entry restrictions in the US means that I can't go there right now, and I was so tempted to go to the Giro because I ended up in Italy after some logistical inconvenience. So here, anyway, it, was, it, was too, it was too close. It was too close to not go. <laughs> at a loose end. So here you are. That's wonderful. Italy, as we've discussed in the podcast over the last uh, few days and weeks, Italy being divided into into zones, different coloured zones according to the coronavirus risk. Um, I think we're in the yellow zone at the moment. But with Brian here, there's a flashing red alert that there's going to be some wine chat. Wine chat. More the, wine the, chat. Well, I've got a wine-related quiz uh, challenge rather for both of you a bit later on. I'll not spoil it. Um, we will be talking a little bit about wine. We'll be talking about today's stage. Well, we're going to hear from our audio diarist, uh, James Knox, and one or two uh, other writers from today. What's going on? There's, that's a very familiar Giro sound. It was a very familiar Giro day, wasn't it? I mean, we've been talking about how... That's getting a little bit too loud. Too much. Yeah, literally picking someone up here. Yeah. Um, we were talking just earlier, Daniel, about how big the crowds were today and how, how normal it felt. Well, I think we're going to talk about that in a bit more depth later, aren't we? But first, I'm really, really looking forward to your tale of the tapa. There isn't really a tale of the tapa. <laughs> it's a time trial, I think. What? I mean, normally this is Lionel's job, obviously. Um, but a time trial, I mean, well, you know, it was it was over a set course. On, Richard, or the riders up. The riders set off one by one <laughs> at, at, at intervals of a minute. And uh, Filippo Ganna won. I mean, there was inevitability about that. Um, it was a very impressive performance from Ghana. We, we were not sure about his form after Tour de Roman. They didn't look at his best, but about 58 kilometres an hour around the course today. Very aggressive performance from him. He took a few risks, I thought, um, and looked um, very, uh, well, like the world time trial champion how, that he is. How many watts did he do? There was a lot of talk about watts today. Um, um, because no it was, it was I a mean, more than course. more than anybody else. It was a flat track bullies course. Um, some big, big beefy riders did pretty well. You would have fared quite well. I would today. have done well today. It was my sort of day. It was a sort of. It was almost a sprinter's course, as much as a time trialist course. I was walking down the course, and a few riders talked about how rough the surface was in places. Um, and they were clattering over parts of the, the road. There were a few holes and, and things. There were also quite a lot of corners. I was surprised at just how fast some of the riders were. You know, when um, Eduardo Affini came across, line, he'd gone in excess of 57 kilometers an hour 
Tobias Foss, his Jumbo Visma teammate. I mean, they had a very good day, Jumbo Visma. Um, Jos van Emden was up there, there too. There was a point just before Ghana came in, actually, when I think the top six riders, and this is a phenomenon we've talked about a lot over the last couple of years, how this this sort of top big three or four or five teams, there's, there's quite a, a gulf op- opening up between them and the rest of the World Tour. And there was a moment when it was De Koenig, Quickstep and Jumbo Visma in the first six positions, I think, today. Yeah, very, very um, impressive from Jumbo Visma. Tobias Foss uh, uh, really sort of announcing himself and Eduardo Affini then came in and he was in the hot seat when Ghana uh, came in and it was it was a pretty convincing win in the end by Ghana. The most interesting aspect of the day, of course, was matching up the top 18 on the day with your <laughs> predicted top 18, Daniel. Um, you got 12 out of 18, um, which is quite impressive. 66 percent. And a couple of others just on the fringes, just on the edges. A few let you down. A few let you down today. Uh, Victor Campanart's disappointing. Simon Yates, I'll be having a word with him in the morning. You'll be having a word with Simon Yates. I mean, that was a that was a bit of a left field choice for the top eighteen. I thought he was. I thought he would be the best um, GC rider, but the best GC rider by quite some distance was Alexander Vlasov. Vlasov did. He was the surprise of the day. Eleventh at twenty four seconds. Very very good performance. Um, Pavel Sivakov, who gave himself three out of ten for his performance today. Uh, Hugh Carthy. Simon Yates, Egan Bernal, all around 35 to 39 seconds back. They're all kind of together. Mikel Landa was was a bit of a loser, um, lost 49 seconds. So, you know, another 10, 15 seconds on those guys. Where do you chaps stand? I'm always, I'm a bit of a sort of prologue evangelist in terms of, I think they're very revealing. I know today wasn't officially a prologue, but I think they always tell you something about everyone's form. Well, yeah. Yeah, they do. But I think also in modern cycling, when you factor in that a lot of the the GC riders or a lot of riders in general come straight from altitude training, it's not always, in my opinion at least, the same indication as it used to be because some of those times strategically how they come down from altitude in a way that's not very suitable, in my opinion, to a a very fast time trial like today. Emmanuel Buchmann as well, a really poor performance from him um, he's not been the same rider that he appeared to be a couple of years ago but he was he lost 55 seconds today. Dan Martin as well 57 seconds Mikel Landa struggled I said Mikel Landa already Sorry. do pay attention please Daniel um, but yeah I mean Vlasov the big winner of the GC riders definitely and uh, a better start to the Giro for him this year than last year I say last year it was, it was six months ago um, shall we hear from Egan Bernal who had a good day today. He was we in that. I think he had a pretty good day. Of yeah. course, he's not raced. He's hardly raced at all in the last. Well, he hasn't raced in two the months last since Terreno. Yeah, and um, yeah, there were some question marks about him. Obviously, question marks about Remco Evenepoel as well. And we'll come on to. Oh him yeah, meant to mention shortly, but um, Bernal, mm, I think one second worse than Simon Yates. A pretty creditable performance. So, and I spoke to him after the finish today. Hey, Anne, it's been a long time since you last raced. Um, was there any rust there, or how did you feel out there? Uh, I felt actually uh, really good. I mean, I don't know how, how was the time, but at least the, the feeling I had was, a, was a, a nice feeling. We will see after the, the times, but anyway, it is just the start, and I'm really happy to, to be here. About the same time as Simon Yates, I think about 15 seconds slower than Vlasov, but are you more or less satisfied with that, the same as Yates? Yeah, I mean... We are not uh, the specialist, so for sure we need to think that we will lost some uh, time in the TTs. So we just try to, to go full gas and then try to recover some time in the in the climbs. Still gassing and fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Last week, we welcomed Super Sapiens as our new title sponsors. It's a partnership we're really looking forward to developing because for one thing, I think we're going to learn a lot along the way. 
For a long time, the conversation in cycling and other endurance sports has been about fueling effectively before, during and after racing and training. Of course, that will never not be critical to maximising performance, but it's only one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is how does an athlete monitor energy use, manage the body's resources and know they're fueling correctly in real time? Super Sapiens is an innovation that combines technology and physiology to help everyone achieve their best. Glucose is the body's preferred fuel source during threshold and high-intensity workouts. And in due course, we'll find out how the Abbott LibraSense biosensor sticks to the arm, measures glucose levels, and sends data to the Super Sapiens app to give minute-by-minute information that can help all athletes. But as Richard mentioned in our Giro preview, for the company's CEO and founder, Phil Sutherland, Super Sapiens is not just a business or an exciting product launch. It's a way of life. In fact, it's a matter of life and death, because Phil was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was seven months old. Yeah, at seven months of age, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Uh, my, the doctors told my parents I'd be dead or blind by 25 based on current standards of te- treatment, technology, and the age of diagnosis. You know, I was the youngest ever diagnosed uh, at that time. And you know, I'd lost 10 pounds in two days. I was hours away from death, but luckily they, they got me. So initially speaking, it was squeezing urine out of my diaper onto a test strip to find out where my glucose was, you know, two to four hours in arrears. And then in early 1983, we got access to blood glucose monitoring. So my parents used themselves without diabetes as the control group, and then me as the test subject, and they would check my glucose and theirs, you know, 10 to 15 times per day to find out what everything did to my body. And you know, ultimately was trying to get the number, you know, as close to theirs as possible. And what they found out is that when I was active and I was moving, you know, then my insulin worked better and my glucose was better. So for Phil, now in his late 30s and a father himself, Super Sapiens has been a lifetime in the making and a fit, active, healthy lifestyle has been at the heart of everything he's done. He's raced at a high level, founded a pro team, Team Type 1. That team is now Team Novo Nordisk and every athlete on the team is a Type 1 diabetic. We'll be finding out a bit more about them in our episodes of Kilometre Zero starting on Monday. Of course, for diabetics, monitoring glucose levels is of critical importance. But Phil is clear about how he wants Super Sapiens to help everyone. Every human's an athlete. We want to help all athletes achieve their goals. To find out more, go to supersapiens.com and we'll hear more of Phil's incredible story tomorrow. Well, we heard before the uh, break there for uh, to hear about Super Sapiens. Uh, and thanks very much to them for their support of the Super cycling Sapiens podcast. Not to be confused with Superman. Who, not to be confused. Course, uh, well, it wasn't a year ago. I keep saying a year ago, but in the last Giro d'Italia opening prologue, of course, crashed out. Yeah, there were n- there was no such drama today. The only drama was Luis Leon Sanchez punctured on a corner, had to change bikes, finished on his road bike, and uh, finished in last place, which uh, doesn't lend much weight to my argument to abolish time trial bikes and have them all, you know, they clearly are slower than time trial bikes. That was proved today by Luis Leon Sanchez. You mentioned before we heard from Egan Bernal, Daniel, about uh, Remco Evenepoel. Well, the most interesting thing about Remco Evenepoel's performance today was that huge Belgian contingent, and this was very predictable of journalists here. I think there's a, someone told me today there was a record, though I can't believe that, that there are more Belgians here than there were I mean, I remember when I was when I wrote my book on Eddie Merckx. I think Hetlaster News once sent twelve journalists to the Giro. Wow! So there are certainly a lot of Belgians here, and we noticed them today, but not quite as many. Well, as that. Renat Schott, our our friend from Sports Up, he's staying in our hotel, and he reckons that there's a record number of Belgian riders in the Giro. Seventeen are here, and some pretty big names. Uh, Even the pool, obviously, the main one among them. He rode very well today. I mean, he hasn't raced since. Uh, Il Lombardia where he had that terrible crash and it's almost it feels almost like an experiment him coming here having uh, De Kooning Quickstep released a video today a film showing the various stages of his recovery from his crash and his preparation for the Giro but it's it's kind of curious that we that he's not raced did you watch the video I did did they explain that because not I really. didn't really understand it not I really know. I mean not really. I, I don't really know the full nature of his injuries. I don't know why he hasn't raced. If he's fit enough to do the Giro, he would have been fit enough to do a race a couple of weeks ago. You know, Liège, Baston Liège or something. I, I don't understand why he's not raced. Maybe our diarist, James Knox, can shed some light on this because he's our, our man on the team. Well, I think regardless of his situation after 
whatever injury it was after his crash in, in Lombardia. For me, there would always be something enigmatic about how it would fare in a three-week stage race with this type of racing, with these types of climbs and this type of competition. Being so young and you know, being obviously one of the most probably physically gifted riders we've seen probably in my time, but we still don't know how, how he'll fare in, in, in this type of racing. He's, he's phenomenal in one week, he can do a lot of things, but he could still be all of that and then not be able to win a Grand Tour ever. I, I, would, I, I say that because that's, that's definitely a possibility and none of us, nor his team, know how he'll do in a three-week race even if he's coming back from an injury or not. I, I do wonder slightly whether, that, you know, them not racing him before now has something to do with this this media phenomenon that has is, is starting to, or this, this, you know, this maelstrom of media interest. Um, you know, again, I was talking to Renart today about you know, the number of Belgian journalists here and the, obviously the attention, the scrutiny that's on Evainapol. And, and it is something, you know, it's another thing that De Koenig will are probably thinking about, whether they realise that they're factoring that in or not. And I, I do feel that, well, Brian's a, a former Pram Communications chief of a, of a major team, plus a team manager, so he can, he can um, um, give his give his insight on this but that 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 strikes me as um as one possible reason why they've taken this approach well i think now because of i feel like half of the sentences i've said the last year has been because of covid but the situation now with the separation between the teams and the media which is very and is very uncycling because cycling has been one of the most approachable sports professional sports there is i think but the situation lends itself to cushioning him and sheltering him from any kind of hysteria because the journalists, the working conditions are now, you can't get close to the bike riders. So you could bring him to any bike race, be it Romandie or anything before the Giro, if he was able to race. And I think he would have been able to not be that bothered by the media. I mean, it's, um, yeah, well, shall we hear from James Knox? He's he sent us in a, a little diary on the eve of the, the Giro. Um, he This is the third Grand Tour uh, at which he's kept an audio diary for us. His diaries are very popular because he's very honest and he gave us a little insight into the workings of the team and in particular how things might go with their two leaders, Remco Evenepoel and Joao Almeida, who both rode extremely well today in the time trial. Back again for my third audio diary. I must have done something right the last couple of times. I think the big obvious talking point this year that's attracted quite a lot of attention in the media and everything is the Joao and Remco situation. A lot of intrigue outside, a lot of intrigue inside the team, obviously. But we've got a simple plan of just backing both guys, supporting both guys, putting them in the best situation possible uh, for the first 10 days or so, getting through that first week unscathed and in a good position, and then see how the legs are, see who's going best. Uh, CEO goes into the race, keeps growing, and yeah, hopefully, you know, the legs can do the talking and the road will decide. But it's, you know, it's a lot easier said than done. Um, sat here myself, difficult to say how things will go out for the for the next three weeks. Um, so really, just hoping for for smooth sailing and you know, a good situation with the team where we can all work together, cooperate, um, and do the best possible job we can. I think we've got a strong team as well to support the guys. You know, I think last year we all got a good experience. Helping Joao in pink for 14, 15 days, and quite a few of us are back this year. Uh, you know, Masnado was going really well in Romandy just last week. Uh, it's a quick turnaround, actually. He was third there, so I'm sure he's full of confidence as well. But yeah, no, really, the plan is two GC guys from the start. So the rest of us were all towing the line, putting ego aside, and helping Joao Ramco do the best possible general classification as possible. So yeah, that's one down already. Fast one, shortest day of this Giro out of the way. Um, and yeah, pretty fast prologue in fairness, uh, most of it tailwind, felt like it was slightly downhill for quite a bit of it, not really a time trial that suited me, if I'm being honest, didn't do a great time trial either, was way down, took a kick in, but that doesn't, uh, that's not really too important for the moment, yeah, the plan I guess is to, to be there on, on the days to support Joao and Remco, so shouldn't be disappointed, but either way, it's still not, <laughs> still not nice seeing yourself 120th or wherever I was. Anyway, the important thing is Joao and Remco right up there took some important time out of their rivals. And yeah, I think they did a really solid start to this Giro. Remy as well, right up there. I think, what did we finish? Four, five, seven? Which, yeah, brilliant performance already for day one. Uh, Remy a little bit disappointed, I think. You know, I think 
doing such a great time trial in Romandy, maybe piled on the pressure. But uh, yeah, that's just life, isn't it? Um, can't win them all, so to speak. But either way, nice start to the day. I think my only notable talking point today is came around the, the second left left corner, only you know 200 meters into the race, and sort of moving into the apex on those clinkers there, rolling out of the big plaza in the piazza, or however you say it, in the start. And uh, I'm not sure what was going on, but there was a spectator who just had a fist out right on the corner. I don't know if they were waving to the camera or they were just leaning out of the corner. But anyway, I got a full punch in the shoulder, which knocked me off balance for a little bit. DS is having a bit of a, a flap in the radio. But yeah, something to laugh about anyway. But uh, anything else? Fans are out. Nice day. Ghana was put on a demonstration, didn't he? What performance? Just uh, on a different level there. Demonstrated once again why he's uh, once again by the best time trialist in the world. Can't argue with that. Difficult for even any of the best guys to get near him. So, yeah, really chapeau. Well, that was James Knox there. Um, Daniel, your point about these short time trials being very revealing of form, I think, is interesting in the context of the current quick step and just how well Almeida and Evenepoel rode today. You know, they look both look like they're going extremely well. And that, that's a, that's got to be a very positive yeah, sign. Yeah, my, my kind of benchmark for that is always and with all the necessary caveats that should apply the the armstrong years the armstrong and the controversial lance armstrong his seven-year reign that is no longer a reign um at the tour de france if you look back at the results of that there was a a, a very significant um well, downturn in his performance in 2003 which proved to be the, the only tour that he really risked losing to Jan Ulrich and um, and uh, you know even if it's only three or four seconds I always think that it's pretty revealing today you know maybe it was a little bit long um, you know maybe specialization and the the better time trialists their sort of advantage was accentuated but I do think that it tells you something about form one thing we have all commented on was the atmosphere today um, it felt you know the Giro's back in its May slot and it felt like a kind of normal Giro in a lot of ways. Um, Italy's kind of slowly, like the rest of Europe, maybe emerging from from COVID or certainly uh, easing restrictions. And uh, there were big crowds out today. Um, everybody wearing face masks, obviously. That that was the one thing that that made it look and feel different. But it it was really, you know, I don't know whether we should be applauding that or being slightly horrified by it. It felt like a normal Giro in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, the signs along the road, which I think were probably made for for today, said that Torino is hosting the, the restart of the Giro. And seeing that Italy is opening up, you know, it, it's a country that's, you can be, obviously before COVID, was divided into regions, but it's been regionalized how the openings uh, of, of the various cities, etc., have been going on. But I think there's a, there's a beautiful symbolism and a nice feeling in general about the Giro being hosted in a very large, you know, one of the major towns of Italy and people are able to come out and see the bike race and it it really felt, like you said, Richard, bar the masks, like the Giro, there would have been a lot more people obviously, but there was a significant crowd today, which I think was very wonderful. And I think if there was any kind of momentum from today's stage that will grow over the next few days because... Um, you know, we, we mentioned that Filippo Ganna won the stage, but Filippo Ganna is a, a local rider. He's a Piedmontese rider, and um, yeah, I remember speaking to Gianni Bugno, um and, and about his 1990 Giro that he led from end to end, and also teammates. Do you think Ganna's going to do that? Well, Gianni Bugno is also in our hotel. I don't know if he you is. noticed it this morning. But about the difference it made when an Italian takes the first pink jersey, that it, it does you know it, it does build a uh, an interest and a, a level of of excitement that you don't otherwise get because you know the average italian although we you know we go on about the passion of the tifosi a lot of italians are kind of casual observers of the italian they don't know that ganna is not going to win the race but they love seeing an italian in the pink jersey and i think dan you spoke to a couple of riders at the finish about the atmosphere today and how it felt i did a couple of the sort of sleeper stars of today's stage maybe guys that um, not too many people tipped except you know yours truly and to do well today but max valscheid and well first we're going to hear from tobias foss a young norwegian I think making his debut in the Giro. Am I right, Richard? No, he rode last year, he actually. Rode last and he rode year. a good time trial in Palermo as well. There you go. Well, I spoke to him and Max Valscheid at the finish. And 
um, was particularly interested to hear their thoughts about you know the, the return or certainly the perceived return of the crowds in the last year or so you've had a lot of races where you've had no crowds and today it's almost like a normal day at a grand tour how did that feel no i also got uh, i didn't expect any people around and then i saw on television that it was quite crowded so that got me a bit pumped up and uh, and excited for the race it's, uh, it's been a long time and to be honest i never experienced a, a real grand tour or world tour race in italy so it was uh, it's cool to see the spectators and a lot of riders have been saying to us over the last few months that they've really missed the crowds. We don't really necessarily appreciate that, but you guys have missed them, haven't you? Yeah, for sure. I think that's something uh, that gives this meaning, like, you know, to see people get passionate for things to do. That's, uh, that's probably why, that's at least why I'm doing what I'm doing. And uh, yeah, it gives us uh, a lot of energy. Thanks a lot, Adam. Really good ride from you, Max. Um, does that tell us that this is a course for big riders and big power? I think uh, you also need corner well. Um, it's a mix of both. A little bit explosivity, uh, good bike handling, but mainly power. Was there anywhere where you could have made up some seconds? Are you slightly disappointed that you didn't take first place? Uh, no, I cannot be disappointed. I gave absolutely everything and with 1k to go, uh, <laughs> I barely saw the road, so uh, I didn't lose any seconds, I think. And how was the atmosphere out there? It's, um, it feels like a normal Grand Tour stage again. Yeah, it was actually super nice. My girlfriend's also here, uh, which motivated me. Um, it's nice to ride again in front of spectators. I hope everybody had the mask on. I was uh, in such a tunnel, I couldn't see much. The Cycling Podcast at Our Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to Science and Sport. It's uh, our sixth Giro with Science and Sport. They first supported us in 2016 and we're very grateful to them for their continuing sponsorship. And if you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, probably a better chance of Brian knowing the discount code than Daniel. 25 SISCP25 at scienceandsport.com. SISCP25 at scienceandsport.com. And a reminder that throughout the Giro, we're running a competition, Super Sunday, Guess the winner on each of the Sundays and win a bundle of science sport goodies worth £80. Um, I was butchering Caleb and Cadell uh, Evans' names. Caleb Ewan is a hot favourite for tomorrow, according to our listeners, with Tim Merlier and Giacomo Nizzolo uh, close behind. No, Dylan Grunewagen? He's not. He doesn't seem to figure in the top three among our listeners, but yeah, definitely, um, definitely a. Uh, um, a good chance for him I thought he looked pretty decent today on his return to racing the competition closes at 9am UK time on Sunday go to thecyclingpodcast.com to enter we'll be running that throughout the Giro we released on the eve of the Giro a special episode Daniel you're talking about the, 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 the route of the Giro through the wines that you've selected with Greg Andrews of Divine Cellars um, I had a listen this morning as I walked into the press centre. Very interesting it was too. It? Well, it was very interesting, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, there's absolutely no cycling chat in it at all, but, I mean, some people will really like that. It's, it's, I learned quite a lot about wine from it. Um, it was fascinating to learn about the, the collapse of Chardonnay, the rise of Prosecco, the fall of Chardonnay. It's terrible. It's just, the fall of Chardonnay, it's a terrible, it's a, you know, it's I'm, a heart-wrenching story. I'm intrigued, <laughs> I'm intrigued by the, the Pecorino wine, which I think is the Abruzzo wine that we're going to sample a bit later Abruzzo, on. Yeah, yeah um, uh, intrigued by that. Now, uh, one thing that Greg said caught my ear. Oh, he said no. that to this make a is, this is the quiz to make a, a good bottle of wine, you need to you need decent fruit. I mean, that sounds obvious, but I just thought, like a cycling team, you need to start with. If you don't have decent fruit, you're not going to make a good bottle of wine. If you don't have decent riders, you're not going to make a good cycling team. If these teams were types of wine, which types of wine would they be? Which teams? Ineos Grenadiers. De Kooning oh. Quick Step and Androni Giacatoli. Giacatolo. Um, Ineos, what was it? Androni. Ineos Grenadiers. I mean, it would be something that's very kind of rich, maybe a bit sort of over, you know, over alcohol, you know, maybe a Shiraz, uh, sort of a, a Southern Rhone, maybe something that produces a little bit too much alcohol. 
Um, <laughs> Too much alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to qualify. Fourteen and a half percent, maybe. Yeah. No, oh, well, 15, and the rest. Sixteen. 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 Yeah. I like freshness in wine, and I definitely think there's an element of freshness to this, to the current version of Ineos Grenadiers. I think the way they're racing, and I think with the, the Brian, of course, is a former employee of the, the yeah, organization now known so as Ineos. Briefly, more so today, I'm, I'm a winemaker, so I feel like I qualify on both counts. But I think for me, they're more a very expensive historical estate in Bordeaux that makes pretty linear, very expensive wine that was then purchased by someone with the deepest pockets you could ever imagine, who bought something that was already very successful that you could then you know, stick another label on, develop it, develop it somewhat so and make it even more, uh, probably potentially more expensive, but at least as successful. I think only Jonathan Tiernan Locke spent less time at Team Sky <laughs> than Brian Nygaard. Uh, next team, De Quick Quickstep. If they were a bottle of what, a, a type of wine, what would they be? Yeah, I guess the Lidl sponsorship doesn't Lidl. doesn't help here. <laughs> I don't know. Of course, famously or not that famously, I'm not sure how many people remember it or watched it. I did a well, Patrick Lefebvre. I used to do a wine column with Patrick Lefebvre for Pro Cycling magazine for a year. Um, but then I submitted Patrick to a taste test a couple of years ago on the Tour de France. So I bought a, a, a sort of four euro bottle of supermarket Pinot Noir and a 40 euro bottle. And he had to tell which one was which and he got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, well. Uh, Androni. Gianni Savio, of course, famously a couple of years ago told us that he doesn't drink much alcohol. He has a little, little, little bit of um, <laughs> grappa in his coffee in the evening. But what would a, it be a sort of van de pays, something that kind of punches above its weight? Yeah, definitely. But it would also be... <laughs> be not, not, not grapes a, from, from dubious sources. Yeah, but it would definitely be a, a wine made from very, very different varietals. Yeah. Both picked in in the in the in the north uh, highlands of Venezuela, <laughs> and some local indigenous grapes like we're drinking now. We're drinking a Timorazo. I must admit that until I listened to this episode, I'd never heard the word varietals. Oh really? No. no. So that's a wine word. Yeah. Varietals. Yes. Oh. Especially spoken by Greg. Of course, is Australian. Yeah. And you know, Australia sort I of founded it its success as a. Well, no, no. I, I enjoyed the, uh, the the distinction between organic and biodynamic uh, wines and the explanation that he gave of, of that was fascinating. So, yeah, if, if you're interested in wine at all, or even if you're not, um, that's there on the feed for people to listen to. Um, but we're in Torino, Tur- Turin, a uh, famous football town, the old capital of Italy, isn't it, Turin? Uh, the first one? Yeah. First capital. I'm, where, I'm, I'm, I'm playing my own little tribute to Turin today. Did you notice, Daniel, how, what yes, form my... Yes, you got Superga shoes. Yeah. And Uncomfortable, actually. We're going to hear a little bit about... We're going to hear a nod to Superga in a minute. Because this morning, Rich, I met another, Brian is a very, very well intimate friend of the podcast, as I said. We met another friend, well, I met another friend of the podcast this morning, um, Herbie Sykes, an adopted uh, Torinese, Torina. Um, he's been here for a number of years, written several books on Piedmontese cyclists. Um, All of them highly recommendable. Yeah, yeah his books Balma. are good. Uh, and his book on the Giro, Giro 100, is very good, very unusual. And his most recent book is on probably the most famous um, Turin institution, Juventus, the football team. Anyway, this morning, there was a little ceremony to the sort of Archduke, the um, well, the most famous cycling personality to hail from Piedmont, Fausto Coppi. Um, at the Fausto Coppi Monument and I went with Herbie this morning and we spoke a bit about Coppi, Piedmontese cycling in general and Turin. So Herbie, most importantly, we're in Turin and we're in a Fiat. Yes. Uh, very, very authentic, very on message. But where are we going? Where are you taking me? Okay, so we're going to the Fausto Coppi Monument on Corso Casale and... Um which was built, if memory serves, in 1995, 96-ish. Um, opposite the Velodromo, the, 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 the famous Turin Velodrome, and kind of 200 metres or so from where Serse Coppi, Fausto's brother, uh, crashed famously and tragically on the running of Milano-Torino in 1951. So... It's kind of, for Piemontese cycling, it's kind of hallowed ground, if you like. Everything coalesces always around Fausto, always, and everything. And this is kind of... uh... So, 
uh, given that the Giro is here in Torino, it just makes sense that there would be some kind of Fausto event that, that, that there needs to be. Often when the when the Giro starts in a very big city, and I, I guess I would consider Torino a very big city, it feels it can feel a little bit lost. Um, you know, it doesn't take over the place in the same way as it might do a smaller town. What's been the the level of sort of expectation, excitement here, or has there been any um, over the last few weeks ahead of the Giro? Uh, I think this is a, a particular Giro and a peculiar Giro because we're coming out of obviously this the pandemic or to a different phase of the pandemic, as you will. Um, so, yeah, it, it's probably assumed more significance than it would otherwise have because it's a large public event um, and a lot of people are going to gather together and we've not been used to that for a year or so. So on that basis, I mean, the Giro is, is always the Giro, yeah? It's, it, it matters a lot, it's a big thing. Um, but probably more so this year than, mm. than probably even than 2011, which was the the um, 150th anniversary of the Republic. So, yeah, there's quite a, there's, you get the sense there's quite a degree of expectation around it. Yeah. For those who have not been to or not spent a lot of time in Turin, I would consider myself among or in that group because you know I sort of have dipped in and out a few times on the Giro. When I think of Turin, I think of Fiat, I think of Juventus, but I also think of a quite an austere city, quite a cold city. You know, I think of uh, sort of misty winter scenes, um, people with their collars turned up. But what is the sort of one stereotype, the one image of Turin that is misplaced or um, that you would like to debunk, would you say? Oh, goodness. Um, I think there is an image of Torino as a kind of an industrial place, yeah, and and and, and people often would would mm, uh, draw parallels with a place like Manchester, northwest, industrial, grimy, lots of weather, that stuff. But um, that that is kind of predicated on the fact that Torino was never really part of the Grand Tour. The Grand the, Napoleon, okay. Uh, denuded Turin of all of its medieval artefacts. So, so, so tourists weren't interested in Turin, okay, because they wanted to see the medieval in Venice and Siena and Verona and those places. So, Torino was never really on on the tourist map, and Torino was a working city. You know, it's a very, very beautiful city. I defy anybody to find a more beautiful town than this. And I, I mean, I'm probably biased because I live here, but but people that come. People spend a lot of time in Milan, for example, and are always blown away by the beauty of, of Torino by comparison. Um, so, yeah, the notion that it's kind of... I suppose the Torinesi are probably... We're almost all there, almost French. We're very close to the border, and the border is an artifice and all the rest of it. So the character of the Torinesi traditionally was fairly close, fairly insular. Um, but... Um, I mean, this is an extremely beautiful Baroque city, and it's it's um, the fact that it's probably not as famous as others is simply because it it was a working place, and it never really felt the need to try and sell itself or promote itself as a tourist destination until probably 2006, post Fiat. Mm. Yeah, just the people in Torino. The the image, the well, the stereotype is this. Well, this expression falsi cortesi, false, false politeness, um, or f- falsely polite, um, are they, and where does that come from? Little bit, uh, <laughs> but um, okay. There, there, obviously, post-war, there was a huge Italian, there was a huge diaspora from the south. Okay, and so. Um, Lots and lot, you know. I would say the, the the majority now of people in Torino are have their origins in the south because, you know, every day during the fifties and sixties, these trains would arrive from Messina, from Bari, from Napoli, and they would disgorge hundreds of people who came to try to find work at Fiat or you know in in this in the industrial triangle, so Milan, Turin, and, and is and that significant? The number of whether well, the scale of that economic migration colossal I mean Torino Turin grew from if we say from between 1951 and 1961 1951 the population of Turin was about 700,000 by 1961 it was 1.2 million and that so you've got this huge inward migration uh, from you know the, the the agricultural areas of Piemonte but also but overwhelmingly from the south so 
you know, the demographic, if you like, has changed a lot. Inevitably, the, the world's a lot more fluid now. And uh, the Torin, Torinesi doc, the old traditional Piemontesi families... Um, the Gianni Saviors of this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they're, they're, they're relatively few and far between now, I think, you know. It's, uh, so yeah, the city's evolved. The city evolves with its with its and its populace is evolving. La figlia di Franco Chirio, che è un personaggio molto noto nel ciclismo femminile, è stato uno dei primi direttori sportivi di squadre femminile, ha avuto grandi campionesse. So, Herbie, we've arrived. Um, small ceremony taking place here. We just heard Faustino Coppi, Fausto's son, speak. But just describe to me where we're standing and what we can see right in front of us. Okay, so we're on Corso Casale, which is um, kind of a thoroughfare, the, the boulevard that r- runs alongside the River Po. And uh, in front of us, we have uh, the monumental Fausto Coppi. In, 19, in the early, I can't remember the exact year, 93 or 94, a group of uh, Piemontese cycling fans, cycling people, headed by Nino De Filippis, who was a very famous Italian champion of the 50s, um, decided to fund a, a Fausto Coppi monument in, in Torino, which obviously is, is the, the capital city of, of, of Coppi's Piemonte. So we're now stood before that, and there's a ceremony taking place to honor Fausto. The, the, the monument is 100 meters or so from the velodrome, the famous Turin velodrome. Um, and 100 meters the other way is where Fausto's brother, Serse, crashed in Milano Torino. So, so it's we just turn and we look. So if we look towards Pino Torinese, towards, towards the hill, the big hill above Turin, with where Superga, if people that know Turin would... Scene of another famous crash uh, in cycling f- where yeah. uh, Marco Pantani crashed in 1995, Milano 94 Torino. 94 or 95? 95, yeah. 95. Yeah. Um, uh, Fausto's brother Serse came off, he caught his, his front wheel, I think, in a tram line at the 1951 Milano Torino, crashed, banged his head, went back to the hotel started to complain of a headache and some hours later died here in Turin in hospital. So Corso Casale is very significant in it- Italian cycling history context uh, for that reason as well. Fausto also famously crashed in the velodrome and another edition broke his collarbone and another edition of, of Milan Turin which com- subsequently compromised his Giro d'Italia. So um, Coppi had a lot of bad luck in Turin but... Um, you know, Turin is, uh, is is one of Italian cycling, or was one of Italian cycling's heartlands. And behind us, we've got two huge rocks with kind of plaques on them. Yeah. And um, one's the Puy de Dome. The other one is the Cor de la Quad Fer. So two famous Tour de France mountains. Are they the real? Are they real? Chunks yeah, they of are. Mountains? Uh, yeah. And we will also have Isward. We have Galibier. We have a piece of the Stelvio. Um, and on the monument itself, we have photos of Fausto under glass from um, many of his great exploits. So there'll be something from the, from, from the Isuard, there'll be something from Stelvio, Galibier. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, the place recalls his, 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 his great exploits. This was the great, I mean, there is this, this the, 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 the Italians always say that Perhaps Merckx was the best cyclist that ever lived, but Coppi was irrefutably the greatest, and I think there's some truth in that. Nice to hear from Herbie Sykes there, and we do recommend his You know books. what, we're going to hear more from Herbie tomorrow, specifically because we're still kind of in Torino in the morning, specifically about the link between Juventus and cycling, oh, and also Fiat like and it. cycling. A Juventus cycling team would be good, wouldn't it, with that kit, the black and well, white stripe? Well, you say that because it's already existed, but oh. I'm not going to explain, oh. I'm not going to say any more about that until tomorrow. Okay. Okay, um, Brian, you're back in Italy. Back your, spir- in your spiritual home. Brian, Brian has had more incarnations than Kylie Minogue. That's the second time I've mentioned Kylie Minogue in the last week on the podcast. But he's been a he's been a cycling team press officer. He's been a cycling team manager. He's been a sculpt. Um, you, you sold you sold art. An art dealer. You've uh, almost been, a diplomat at one point. You've been a vineyard manager. You went to university in Scotland, which is obviously... You, you know a lot more about me than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very surprised, Richard. Thank you. you have you done my Wikipedia? <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. I might get on to that later. Yeah, I'm, yeah, for some reason, now it's more coincidence than anything else. I've, 
I would I will always gravitate towards Italy, and I'll, I think this is also where I will end up living eventually. Uh, they make wine here too, and now I now I run a a winery in Sonoma in the northern part of of California. But seeing that I was stuck in Europe and I couldn't go back into the states because of new entry rules, it's I was down in Tuscany and it was, Torino was only four hours away, and I I, I have to say at at the second part of the 20 years or, or almost 20 years I worked in pro cycling I was kind of fed up being a bike racer but having been away from it for a little bit I, I'm the, the joy I have being here without really being part of it but just being at a bike race and then I do still do a little bit of journalism mostly for for my own enjoyment but it, it's for a newspaper in Denmark with with a decent readership. Very acclaimed journalism. I, I, I don't understand the Danish bikes. I see the praise that Brian gets. It's the oldest newspaper in the world. through Google Translate. It's a, a newspaper that has existed since Not forgetting your journalism for the cycling podcast. This is that journalism as well. as well, Brian. It feels definitely like journalism right now, drinking, <laughs> drinking wine here in the streets of Torino. No, I, I, I just enjoy being at a bike race and, and seeing Italy opening this way makes me makes me think to, to a certain degree also that it's probably here ultimately I belong. My children were born in, in Pisa. I have two twin girls with Italian names. And I think eventually I'll, I'll end up here, maybe maybe making wine, maybe doing something else. It, uh, it's been a hard um, journey going back and forth now for a year from between Europe and California. And, and I, I know that I'll be happy either way, but I have to, I have to think about my family and I, the, the, the joy they'll have, my, my children and my wife, of, of living in Italy that I've had, I, I definitely want to give them that possibility. And, and seeing the Giro today and, and being here, not just with you guys, but in general, is, yeah, I, I, I probably missed Italy a lot more than I thought I would. Do you know what struck me today? That one of the reasons why we get so excited about coming to the Giro and also we, you know, we were all pleased to, today to see the Giro out in full color is Italy itself always feels like an underdog story. And we always, we're always inclined to kind of root for the underdog. Um, and I don't know, it shouldn't feel like that because Italy has more kind of riches and you know natural glories than almost anywhere else. But it does all always feel like the kind of little man. I remember you once told me the difference between France and Italy, and in, in your experience was how how much they love the credit that you would give, you know, as a foreigner living here and, and learning their language, compared to to France, which is a country that that you're very familiar with. Do you get enough credit for being <laughs> no. your efforts? Richard? No, the difference is in Italy they're really surprised if you speak the English, if you speak the language, and in France they're really disappointed if you don't. That's that's the difference. It's a very isn't good it? way of saying it. Um, I mean, just personally as well, waking up yesterday morning early to catch a flight here. Uh, on the one hand, when the alarm goes off, you're you know kind of wishing you could stay in bed, but. I did actually catch myself and think a year ago we were setting out on our Giro, which was basically, you know, creating our own imaginary Giro. At that time, we thought, when will the Giro? When will bike races happen again? And when will we be able to go to the Giro again? And so it's um, it, it, it's it's really it's really thinking back to that and the, the sort of state of mind we all had a year ago and the uncertainty and the the bleakness of it it's really nice to be here it's a privilege to be here uh, and it's very nice to see the race kind of being run in the way that it is in the time that it's supposed to be run in may so that was nice today and it was a nice may day wasn't it as well what do we got tomorrow chaps it's a sprint stage isn't it we're going up to novara which is kind of the edge of piedmont um birthplace of beppe saroni well, I think we'll hear a little bit about Beppe Saroni tomorrow. We're sort of going through, we're kind of dipping into, again, to bring it back to wine, sort of Piedmonti, famous Piedmontese wine country. Do you know, I spoke to Matteo Sobrero today of Astana. Did you have? A, did you give him a hard time for letting you down? Well, he did let Because he was one of your bit. top 18. Well, he was one of my eight, top 18 because last, well, last year in Palermo, he exceeded all expectations. He finished seventh. But Matteo is first and foremost a winemaker and his dad is a winemaker Giorgio Sobrero in a place called Montelupo Albese they make a very good um, dolcetto and um, I said to I spoke to Matteo today and we talked a bit about the race and how he felt and he said not quite as good as last year and I said Matteo tomorrow we're going to talk serious business we're going to talk about wine tomorrow he's better (laughs) better at making wine than he is at finishing in the top 18 in the time trial well if you had to pick what what would you what would you go for Uh, top 18 in the time trial (laughs) me personally I mean this wine we're having is very nice can i just say Very yeah nice. thank you Brian yeah, it's, a, tell us about it. it's a timorasso which is a local indigenous grape to piedmont that 
they completely almost disappeared from the from the face of the Italian soil. Like Brian Nygaard kind of disappeared, almost disappeared. Yeah, from which is a, which is a privilege. <laughs> but when you're a, when you're a grapevine, not it's so a much. white wine. It's a white and it wine. tastes a bit like Chardonnay to me. Is am yeah, I am I, I the, am the, I saying something ridiculous? No, there? no, no. In this case, not. The I think it's the, the, <laughs> the oak element uh, in this wine gives it that characteristic. It is actually quite interesting, thick-skinned grape that one producer brought back to life again by replanting it in the in the mid 80s and then other producers uh, followed and it's called timurasso and, and it's a it's a very aromatic grape thick skinned grape that back in the days was very under underestimated and, and was mainly used to produce grappa because of the thick skin but now uh, some producers i think almost 30 producers now locally here in, in parts of piedmont use it grow it and We'll try another one later on that is not so, that old. So who's the who's equiv- who's the thickest skinned cyclist? Who would be the equivalent bike rider? You would hope it would be Dylan Grinnewigan, and I'm just bringing it back there yeah. to tomorrow's stage yeah, because so he uh, has returned to racing days at a nine-month suspension after his involvement in the crash last year. Well, he caused the crash. Well, yeah, uh, in Fabio the current Jacobson. days, we should get into that whole business because it, there have been further developments in the last 48 yeah, hours. Jacobson, you know, Jacobson has said that he's not, not happy because Grinnewigan did not apologise to him it, I mean I have the greatest sympathy for Fabi Jakobsen and he had a, a horrific uh, crash and he's had a terrible a, a kind of very hard road back he's still on the road back he's racing in Algarve at the moment um, but to, to lay it all at Dylan Grunewagen's door seems to me just unfair and, and not right and um, it's uh, if Grinnevigan is sort of demonised for for his involvement in that crash, that's very that that doesn't make things any better for Fabio Jakobsen. Um, what Grinnevigan did in that in that in that incident was wrong, but it's something that we've seen virtually every sprinter do in some sprint finish at some point. And I, the, for one, will be very happy if Grinnevigan. He wins was tomorrow. not responsible for the consequences of of the crash. It, it, certainly not entirely responsible. So. Well, we'll see. Um, we'll see how, how it goes tomorrow. But uh, Caleb Ewan is a big favourite, according to our listeners. Shall we wrap up for tonight, chaps? We should. Let's, Let's go, go and have dinner. Brian. Brian's responsible for the restaurant recommendation. Means you have nothing to worry about. Yeah, and he's not on the podcast Very tomorrow, confident. so we can't castigate him on the podcast tomorrow <laughs> well, we if can. it goes wrong. And we will. <laughs> but I'm sure we won't, because I'm sure it'll be very nice. That's all for tonight, then. Thanks very much, Brian. Thank you, guys. Nice to see you again. Thanks, Thanks Daniel. Richard. Thanks, Brian.